Maguire. Welcome to this week's show of Who Cares What's the Point, the podcast about the mind for people who think. This week, I'm really pleased to be interviewing Anil Seth, Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex in the UK and co-director of the Sackler Centre for Consciousness Science. I first saw Anil talk at the TED conference earlier this year and it really fascinated me the ideas he was talking about around consciousness Uh, and I dug out an old paper of his back from 2013 which is actually an opinion piece but I thought it had some really fascinating fascinating summary of ideas of his framework for how we make sense of the world not just the external world but also what's going on within our bodies. And his ideas are really about exploring being a self. So please have a listen to the conversation between myself and and Anil. It's a little bit longer than usual this week, but it really is a a really enjoyable conversation that I had with Anil and I hope you think the same. Okay, thank you for joining us this week, Anil. Um, I have to say this is a a paper that's a little bit um, older than we normally look at from 2013, but the reason I looked at it was because I saw you talk at uh, TED this year, uh, and I was very struck by the ideas and how you communicated with them. So I thought you'd be ideal to have on the show. So thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So maybe we could start off with um, perhaps what brought you to writing this. Kind of, it was an opinion paper, but there was a lot of work uh, that I sense, and I, I know a little bit about the background that took you to this point in the first place. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what uh, inspired you to write this in opinion piece. Yeah, sure. It's it's um it is an opinion piece, but like many of these opinion pieces, it came out of quite a body of previous work both theoretical and, and experimental. And it's been actually a very important part of, of my academic career and my thinking over the last few years. And the origin of it is, is really quite simple. And the origin goes to a very old idea, uh, which stems originally, or I like to think of it, starting in about the 19th century um, from the German physiologist and physicist Hermann von Helmholtz. And Helmholtz was thinking about how we perceive not our bodies, but how we perceive the world around us. And he came to the idea, came to the conclusion really, that perception of the world around us has to be what he called a process of unconscious inference. And a simple way to think of that is that it's, a, it's the brain's best guess of what's going on out there in the world. I mean, your brain, think about your brain, it's, it's locked inside this bony skull. It doesn't have any direct access to anything out there in the world, whether it's coffee cups on your table or trees out there in the yard or whatever. All that's going on is bunches of electrical signals are arriving in the brain and they have to be interpreted somehow to generate this rich conscious perception that we have of of everything around us. Um, But the sensory signals themselves don't have enough information. It's not like some neuron fires which has tree written on it and then you perceive a tree at all. Uh, You just have all these statistical patterns of information coming into the brain that it has to make sense of. So Helmholtz's idea was that the way this works is that the brain imposes some kinds of prior expectations or beliefs. And we're not consciously aware of having these. They're just built into the the circuitry of the brain. And these prior expectations and beliefs uh, are combined with the incoming sensory data to form this brain's best guess of what's happening. 
I mean, formally, this is called something like Bayesian inference, where, where you come up with the most likely expl- explanation for some data, given some prior expectations about the causes of that data, about what's going on. It's a very general framework for doing probability theory with. Uh, and a simple example of this working perception is, is something like um, the way we interpret shadows. So if you see like a, a concave um, disc with, with, with some shading in it, well, our brains will interpret it as either sticking up from the ground or, or as a little pit sinking into the ground. And uh, we'll see it one way or the other based on the assumption that light always comes from above. And this is not something we consciously think through and, and work out. The brain just does it because its perceptual system has built in this prior belief that generally light always comes from above. It's a kind of safe assumption. And it determines how we see. So we have this framework from, from Helmholtz that, that understands perception as this kind of uh, controlled hallucination where the brain is always throwing out its best hypotheses, best guesses, and they're being reined in by, by sensory data from the world. And what we see is this nice, uh, you know, usually a very appropriate balance between the two. So that's how we perceive the outside world. And, and in our lab, we do a lot of experiments about trying to pin down you know, the actual brain basis of this and trying to figure out if it's actually what's, what's going on. So I think it's a very powerful framework. Um, what, this, uh, what my research has been about more specifically and, and what this paper that, that you found deals with, it applies this framework to how we perceive our own bodies. And I think this is, this is for me, why we should care and, and what the point is, because it's one thing to think about how we perceive the external world. But for most of us, it's how we experience being a self that is perhaps the central feature of our mental lives and also that part of our mental lives which is most vulnerable to um, illness in psychiatry or, or neurology or, or mental health generally. And previously, sort of ideas about how we might experience being a self had not been given this kind of explicit computational or cognitive framework, this explicit mechanism. But it seems reasonable to, to think, well, if, you know, if that's the way we perceive the outside world, well, why not apply the same line of thinking to how the brain processes sensory signals that come from its own body? And in particular, I mean, there, there are many sensory signals that, that have to do with our body. If I look in front of me now, I'm holding my hands in front of my face and I can see my hands. And of course, those are visual signals that are related to myself because one of the experiences of being a self is, is experiencing part of the world as your body and other parts of the world as, as not your body. So we can already, we can already use our normal senses, if you like, like vision and, and hearing and, and touch to constrain that kind of the experience of self, what is our body and what is not our body. But there's a whole raft of sensory signals that come from deep within the body that tell the brain about the internal state of its, of its own physiology, how the heart is beating, what the, what the gut is doing, or, you know, or all the, the various electrolytes uh, in balance, all the things that we need to stay alive and to stay, to stay healthy. Are they all working well? Uh, and these signals uh, are called interoceptive signals. They come from in the body straight up into the brain. And I mean, the idea in this paper was that, well, the brain also has to figure out its best guess of what's causing those signals. It has to 
has to do some process of inference just as it has to do for the outside world too. But whereas when I look around me, I see objects out there like coffee cups and trees and tables and, and so on. I don't experience the inside of my body in the same way at all. Rather, I experience moods and emotions and this very, very inchoate but, but strong sense of just being a body. And I think that that is the result of this process of inference that's dealing with these signals coming from, from inside the body. Now, this is a, a theoretical framework, uh, but what it does do is it, it motivates a lot of different kinds of experiments. Firstly, it explains a lot of existing data, and then it motivates uh, new things that we can do as well, both in healthy people, but also we can start to think about some disorders of the way in which we experience emotions and selfhood uh, through this framework. So it might give us new tools to conceptualize and then hopefully uh, shed more light into a lot of different neuropsychiatric problems. Uh, I think the thing that I found fascinating, that was a really um, excellent explanation uh, as a foundation for the conversation. I think what I found really fascinating when I saw you talk and read this paper was the idea that we actually have some kind of hardwired infrastructure that is seeking signals uh, and as it seeks and finds those signals then it uses that signal to build up a picture around what it is that we are experiencing and as you say there's the difference between the external world perhaps not the difference actually an integration between what's going on in the external world but also those senses of, of and what we're picking up going on inside our bodies too and i guess it made me think a lot about um meditative techniques uh, or even really a level below that relaxation techniques where you may do a body scan or something like this in order to almost ground yourself back into your experience of what is going in your on in your body and people using this as a way of calming themselves of getting themselves into a different sense of relation with not only their body but also perhaps what's going on in their heads because of external uh, pressures or signals or um, contingencies that they've been exposed to. So it is the integration between the external and the internal, and yet we have this mind that's busily throwing out um, a framework and looking for signals to build up a picture of the world and ourselves as well. That, that's what was fascinating to me was the integration between that internal and external world. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of really interesting points there. I mean, in cognitive science, psychology, and in philosophy, there's there's been this this endless debate about this idea of of internal representation. You know, do, does the brain build up an internal model of of the external world, or indeed an, an internal model of its own self, you know, of, of its body as well, given that the the body is also part of the world, and you know, this has gone back and forth, whether this is a sensible way to think about things or whether it's a hopelessly naive view. And in one sense, it, it is naive. I think the the thing to, to be wary of is, is this idea of um, uh, a kind of inner homunculus, that there is this sort of movie in the head that is directly reflecting uh, whatever's out there. And you know, the whole external world is, is reconstructed in a high degree of accuracy inside our brain somehow uh, to be viewed and, and, and interpreted by you know, somebody sitting inside our brain looking at it. I don't think that's the way it works 
at all. I mean, you have there's lots of problems with that view. Uh, rather, you know, I, it seems that we perceive the world not as it is, but as it is useful for us to do so. Uh, those are the kinds of, if you like, the 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 active hypotheses that the brain is is testing out in the world not always to find out exactly what's there but to find out what's there that's useful for uh for the for ongoing interaction to achieve certain behavioral goals and this is a tradition in psychology that's associated with people like jj gibson called ecological psychology and, and more recently with people who would call themselves inactive or embodied cognitive scientists um and in this debate, I think this whole framework of, of predictive coding or predictive processing, this idea of the brain's best guess, charts a very nice course and provides what I think is a very satisfactory solution because it shows a mechanism by which the brain does generate some kind of internal model, but it doesn't have to be like a like a picture or a movie or a homunculus. Rather, it's a it's what we would call in in statistics a generative model that is capable of 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 reconstructing the sensory data that we might in, encounter, um, and I mean the this has a very interesting implication that in order to perceive anything, whether it's our own bodies or the external world, the brain in a sense has to be capable of of generating that same data, and that that speaks to a very tight link, if you like, between imagery, between visual imagery and perception. If we can't imagine something, then perhaps we won't be able to to perceive it you know of course that's not you know, strictly true because we can we can experience new things we can perceive new things but they're always structured by what we've perceived before they're always perceived in the light of how we've interpreted previous data so i think it's a very nice uh way to think about what an internal representation of the external world or the body might be now the second thing you said about about meditation, I think, is absolutely fascinating. And, and you know, I've been on uh, meditation courses and, and tried. It's not easy. I mean, I find meditation extremely difficult, uh, but it's not supposed to be easy. And one of the one of the standard methods is, of course, this body scan, where you you pay attention to the signals coming from your own body. And I think this is really really powerful because one of the things that the brain and mind tends to do is it tends to seek explanations for all the sensory signals that it gets. And the explanations that, the, that it comes up with um, can be guided by what, it's, what we're paying attention to. And it's, it's very classic, and I think we all know this from everyday life, that if we're feeling anxious or if we're feeling worried about something, then we can start to to come up with all kinds of explanations about things going on in our lives, things uh, that we're, might be happening in the future, things that we've done in the past that might account for, explain away these bodily sensations that we're getting. And one of the things I think that meditation and especially this body scan methods can do is reorient our attention to those signals coming from inside the body so that we don't seek uh, sort of further explanation for them they're just there and we can we can perceive them as they are and you know i know from my own experience that it can be very reassuring when you're when you're feeling kind of high degrees of anxiety to just realize that a large part of that is just the perception of bodily signals and when you experience that directly 
that can calm the brain's eternal search for other kinds of, of explanations. There's a few things there I'd, I'd love to pick up on. And I guess one of them, the last thing that you said was, it makes me wonder and think about the debate that we have as to whether um, we experience the emotion first um, and then we retrospectively try to understand what it was that caused that emotion or whether we um, experience the emotion as a result of going through a particular event or these um, signals that we're appreciating in our, in our bodies. And I think what you were uh, outlining there was that actually being able to dispassionately observe and say, actually, this is just bodily signals that are going on and I'm choosing to interpret them in a particular way. Um, I'm just wondering what your um, this uh, this way of thinking says about that, um, um, what we think about emotion and what emotion is. Yeah, it, it, that's right. I think I, this was really one of the original motivations for, for the paper was to try to bring up to date some of these ideas about what emotion really is and, and, and especially what the, the the order of events that generates an emotional experience is and and i think there's a, there's been a few people coming up with similar ideas and this is in a way it's an idea whose whose time has come it wasn't uh, you know it's not just this paper other groups like uh, lisa barrett in in america and um and others too have come up with similar ideas and it's the debate about what emotion is goes back more than a century and it's it might seem natural to think of let's let's imagine a situation where you see something really scary i mean the typical example is you see a bear and i've never seen a bear so i can <laughs> so, <laughs> i'm not sure it's the most relevant one but let's imagine you go out you see a bear you feel fear and and you run away um so it might seem natural to think that you visually see the bear that generates this emotion of fear and that emotion of fear then leads the brain to set in train all these physiological responses like an increase in adrenaline and, and cortisol, all the things that, 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 make the, uh, that, that allow us to, to flee or fight or, or do something really dramatic rather than just be calm. You don't want to just stand there. And uh, so the idea then is these physiological responses follow the emotion of fear and allow us to implement the, the appropriate behavior. Now, way back, more than a century ago, William James, who said pretty much everything there is to say about psychology and consciousness already, suggested it was the other way around, that indeed you see a bear and indeed there is some basic recognition of the fact that that's a potentially dangerous thing. But before you experience the fear, the brain is already uh, changing the physiological condition of the body, getting ready for running away or for fighting. And it's the brain's perception of this physiological changes that constitutes the emotion of fear. So this changes everything, really. It says that that emotion is the perception of changes in the internal physiological state of the body uh, in the same way that our, our experience of the outside world is, is an interpretation of signals coming from the outside world. And this this kind of it went back and forth in psychology for a long time, and it was extended in, in the 60s by um, these guys, Schachter and Singer, who said that, look, it's not just a uh, straightforward perception of the of bodily physiology. It also depends on the context you're in. So if you if you have some cognitive beliefs that you're in a, in a, in a, in a good situation, um, then, for instance, you might 
have uh, an emotion of excitement when your body physiology changes in a particular way, when there are high levels of physiological arousal. But if you believe that this is a dangerous situation, you'll experience a different emotion, maybe fear in that case. Um, and what uh, my paper does and, and other similar papers do is kind of generalize this to saying it's not just there's a, a low level perception of the physiological condition of the body and then some high level conscious beliefs about the context. Rather, there is this, if you like, multi-level process of best guessing about the internal state of the body at all times. So that emotion is continually constructed by the brain based on its best guess about what's happening in its own body. And this can be low-level best guesses about, you know, okay, my heart has just increased in, it, in its heart rate, so that must mean that, that you know, the, my whole bodily state is changing in some way, up to very high-level best guesses that this is a scary situation, it's a scary context. And importantly, we don't have to be conscious of all these best guesses. We're just conscious of the, of the end result, which would be the emotion. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we've had a chance to talk about William James. He's very much my one of my heroes. And it sounds like what you're talking about, this is a very dynamic, on-the-fly kind of a process, which is happening from moment to moment as we make sense of uh, what's going on in our bodies and what this means for um, how we predict and construct the world according to what signals we're receiving. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I think that's one of the, the key points that there is this, if you like, a circular causality going on all the time between sensory data coming in, the brain updates its best guesses about the causes of that sensory data and also seeks new data. And I think there's there's an important balance here that that um, the brain is always trying to, if you like, minimize the the prediction error. So, so maximize the extent to which its guesses about the world are accurate. And there are two ways of doing this. One way is to continuously just update the predictions. Another way is to change the sensory data to make actions to to move around. And you know, you can think about this in um, you know, in a, in a simple example again that that if I walk outside and I'm expecting to see a friend and it's a foggy day, then I might actually see my friend to be there. I'll update uh, my prior expectation um, so that it becomes my friend. But I could equally realize that it isn't and then look somewhere else where my friend actually is and change the sensory data. And in each case, I'm seeking or my brain is seeking a better match between incoming sensory data and its prior expectations. And I think understanding that that balance holds the key to understanding how perception is linked to behavior. And you mentioned imagination before, and I guess as we were speaking, and I was thinking about it before, I was wondering about the role of language here. How does language fit into this idea of making sense of the world at an unconscious level and, and, and experiencing emotion? But I, I, and I guess I was thinking about alexithymia, the idea of not being able to find words for experiences of emotion uh, that we may um, experience. And how do you think that fits into this model of construction of self and the integration between the external and internal world uh, and senses, um, signals that we may be picking up? Yeah, this is this is again super interesting, and uh, you know, language is is um, 
I, it's clearly so important and we're using language right now we use language all the time it's one of the most distinctive faculties of humans we can argue whether other animals have language they probably do but certainly not to the richness that that humans do but i also think it's possible to, because it's so central to our lives i think it's possible to overestimate the role that it plays in perception and in emotion um there are some wonderful examples from sort of uh maybe color perception where you can show that that having more color words can lead to people actually seeing more colors of course the causality here is difficult to establish what you can establish is that there is an association uh, but it seems basically it seems to me that that language terms give us another very high level set of predictions about about sensory data they give us categories in which we can we can use to interpret different kinds of sensory data um and the same is kind of true in in emotion uh you know one of the things that i, I find fascinating is that there's a beautiful book by uh, a british author called tiffany watt smith i'm struggling to remember the exact name but what it i think it's called a history of emotion something like that but what it does is it goes through lots of, of terms that many of which we are not used at all now but we, which sort of have been used in the past uh, to describe particular very specific emotions that that may have existed then that, that we may not feel now or we may just not describe now uh, so it's it's an open question. I mean, we, we're all familiar as well with with the, the the word Schadenfreude, which is, of course, a German word to describe a particular emotion uh, that the English language hasn't got its own term for. Does that mean we as English speakers don't experience that emotion? I don't think so. Uh, but maybe a natural German speaker would experience it slightly differently. In the end, I don't I find it hard to believe that language is necessary for experiencing a rich variety of emotion and perception. But I do think that having rich language can allow us to experience perhaps a, a richer or more diverse range of experiences. And this leaves very much open the question about a, a condition like alexithymia, whether it's a difficulty with accessing the words to describe experiences or whether there's some more basic uh, problem that, that of, of recognition of distinct emotional states independently of knowing the right words. Yeah, and I guess it's very difficult to disentangle those two possibilities. And I guess as you're talking, I'm thinking about, I wonder what a pre-verbal child's world uh, and their experience of the world is. Uh, I guess we'll never know, but it, it does make me think that. And, I, and then I guess the next step then is something that I heard you speak about is, so what about animals? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, this is another problem with, with, with putting too much emphasis on language is that you start to run into all sorts of uh, all sorts of awkward situations about, you know, what about infants indeed? What about other other animals? I think it's it's uh, there's very little to suggest that, that infants don't experience emotions. They there may be some kinds of emotions that require development in order to experience, um, you know, maybe anticipatory regret you know the regret for things you haven't even done yet is probably an emotion that certainly requires the the ability to think about the future and a preverbal infant may not have that ability um but what about other animals i mean emotion seems so basic to survival 
uh, as a conscious experience. I mean, one of the one of it, it's absolutely fundamental, regardless of how you perceive the external world. For instance, you need to know the brain needs to know are its conditions viable and are they going to continue to be viable? The most basic, and even among emotions, some are more basic than others. Disgust, for instance, is probably among the oldest, evolutionarily speaking, of emotions. You need to know, is something you're going to put inside your body going to be good or bad for you? And that has to be you know, marked somehow. So I think emotions are going to be extremely uh, common throughout the animal kingdom. Um, and then it becomes a challenge and a very difficult challenge to figure out what kinds of emotional perceptions um, other animals might be capable of, of, of having. And there's, there's some lovely work on this. Though. I mean, people really do try. I and mean, one of my favorite papers uh, about this is about regret in, in rats and you know, trying to distinguish between whether a rat feels regret for a decision it made, you know, peck the right or poke the, um, the right uh, button or poke the left button, or whether it's merely disappointed by the outcome. And the idea that you can try to experimentally disentangle uh, disappointment and regret, I think, is, is absolutely fantastic. I mean, by the way, the way they do that is they look at the, the rat's behavior after it makes a, um, a choice for which it doesn't get what it might have been expecting. You know, you can train rats to, to to go for different options and reward them with different probabilities. And of course you can violate those probabilities now and again. And what they what these these investigators showed, I think it was a lab of David Reddish, they showed that after being um receiving a surprisingly low uh reward, uh the rats would sort of look towards the other option for a bit longer than they might have otherwise done as if they were sort of wistfully thinking about oh you know if only if only i'd pack that other button instead oh that, that's uh, absolutely fascinating but i guess there, there is a little bit of projection perhaps around what what that might be yeah there is yeah more than yeah. a little um so i guess just winding up and thinking about who should care and uh, and what's the point of doing this research i guess the other thing that you do talk about in this paper which probably leads us on to that is your um ideas around how this may explain neuropsychiatric conditions or mental health disorders as some kind of disorder of this uh, inference of this interoception uh, perhaps you could speak a little bit about that and and then further along in, in in terms of what you think the the point and who should care about this uh, way of looking at the world and that's right i mean like many things in science it's, it's nothing happens very very quickly but actually i was very um, very pleased at the moment. We, I just come back from a from a conference in China. Um, this is the annual meeting of the uh, Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness, which is is for for my money anyway the the, the premier scientific meeting on consciousness um, in the world. It moves around everywhere, but it happened to be this year in China. And we had a symposium, um, a sort of main lecture plenary symposium, saying on these ideas of, of interoceptive inference, on the ideas in the paper, um, with me and three other researchers. And uh, to be honest, I was just kind of repeating what's already in the paper, the, the light entertainment at the beginning. But what was fascinating was that you know, you're, we're now beginning to see other groups really drive some innovative experimental work in this area. So there's uh, there's there's lots of challenges. For instance, what would be evidence in the brain that something like this process is going on? Uh, I mean, uh, one signature would be 
trying to find brain signals that signal prediction errors about the internal state of the body. Um, and we look for these in, in vision and, and other senses as well. But trying to find what we would call interoceptive prediction errors is very is very important. And there's some interesting new evidence that that uh, such errors might be uh, discernible from from neuroimaging data, from brain imaging data. So that's one thing that that's going on. And then the wider view, indeed, is about uh, approaches to psychiatry and to other areas of mental health. And here there's, there's a few topics which I think could, be, could benefit a lot from taking this perspective. Now, it doesn't suggest there's going to be this new pill that you can take and, and sort out your interoceptive inference at all. But it just suggests um, that we can start to take a more mechanistic view that, that links dysfunction in the brain to the particular symptoms of psychiatric illness. One example is anxiety. So anxiety is, is a very common mental health problem. And as we were talking about when we were talking about meditation, um, the symptoms of anxiety are quite often bodily symptoms. We feel a high degree of persistent discomfort in, in our body. And so one idea about anxiety is that uh, the brain is, is continually mispredicting its own internal bodily state. Um, and you've got, if you like, this chronic elevated interoceptive prediction error uh, so that the brain's perception of its internal state is always out of whack with its body. And on the one hand, that might account for some of the, the symptoms of anxiety and it might also account for some of the consequences of it too because if you're misperceiving your, your body, you're also not so well able to control it. And this is another aspect of the framework that, that, uh, that we, we don't really have that much time to go into. But perception is not about, as I said before, it's not about forming an accurate perception or, or picture of an external world. It's about what's useful for the organism, retrieving the information that's useful. And for the internal state of the body, what we need to do, what the brain needs to do is control and regulate it. So if your perception of the, the body is out of whack, your ability to control and regulate your internal state is also out of whack. And so that's, that's anxiety. And you can think, well, maybe then you have avenues to both diagnose anxiety through measuring uh, how good people are at tracking their, their bodily signals, but also perhaps uh, generating some novel therapies in terms of training people to better um, uh, perceive and control the internal state of their bodies. This is actually very similar to what mindfulness meditation mm. does, but it puts it in a, in a very different, if you like, neurocognitive framework and, and you know, brings, and brings to bear the possibility of, of augmenting something like mindfulness with all the fancy tools that we have in, in cognitive neuroscience. And just to mention, I mean, the other, the other framework, I think the other condition that I think is very significant for this approach is depression. Mm. I mean, there are no good approaches to depression, really, and it's such a, a devastating illness. Uh, but there are some lovely ideas emerging mainly from the group of Lisa Barrett in the States and from Klaus Stefan in, in Zurich that depression in terms of mechanism is not really to do with, you know, low or high levels of serotonin or, or what have you, but it's more to do with the brain's unconscious beliefs in how good it is at regulating its internal state. It's a kind of metacognition of how good it is at homeostatic regulation. 
And you know, this explains, for instance, why there's often a, a clinical trajectory from fatigue to chronic fatigue to depression. And when these beliefs about how good the brain is at regulating the body get entrenched, they be can become self-fulfilling so that the brain generates this dysregulation of its bodily state that it's predicting itself to do, if you like. It's just a, a kind of vicious circle. Um, and we see evidence of these vicious circles in, in depression all the time in terms of people's cognitive thinking too. So I don't think these approaches replace um, either you know, pharmacological approaches or cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness, but they complement these approaches in a very interesting way. And, and the hope really is that, um, that over time within psychiatry, we transition from a situation where we just treat the symptoms, like with the equivalent of a painkiller, to where we, where we can really get at the mechanisms. So just to wind up now, Anil, um, where next for you? Where, where is this approach taking you at the moment? What are you interested in? Oh, it's, um, I mean, I, I'm interested in, in, in exactly pursuing uh, this framework along these, these lines to try to um, try to build computational models that, that put some flesh on the bones of some of these conceptual ideas um, and then try to apply these models both to healthy people but also to people with uh, uh, various kinds of, of psychiatric problems. In, in our case, actually, another context is Tourette syndrome, where, where people you know, make involuntary actions all the time, and, and we want to know what, what's happening there. Um, and then to test these models using brain imaging data. Um, that's where I want to go. And, and part of the challenge here is to develop the experimental methods. One of the, the, the greatest issues with this kind of research is that just it's really hard to do in a lab. I mean, if we study vision, it's very easy to put somebody in front of a computer screen and show them this image or that image. It's much, much harder to record from and especially to manipulate signals that are, that are coming from within the body. But I think that's exactly what we have to do if we want to uh, really um, deliver on the implications and the promise of this way of thinking. Mm. As you're talking, as you were talking, I was thinking about the other end of the scale as well as those people who are struggling with experiences um, like anxiety and depression. I was also thinking about those people who are performing perhaps really um, complex and um, um, high-performing individuals, perhaps athletes, who perhaps um, are constantly doing exactly what you're saying, is understanding what's going on and acting upon the signals that are going on in their body and integrating that with the external world as well um, and just thinking about that as a possible avenue of application as well yeah I mean that's something that that um, that yeah, we're not doing it in the lab here but I know there's a couple of groups very interested in that and I think it is absolutely fascinating one thing that, that athletes seem able to do is of course they can push their bodies to extremes uh, that that other people cannot do, but it's but I think they also do in doing so perceive their bodies in a, in a very different way. Um, and you know, one thing I'm interested in is that for non-athletes, perceiving things like really elevated heart rates and things like that is is something that we're not used to, and is something that would be interpreted by the brain as a as a possibly and maybe actually dangerous situation. But but athletes. Uh, probably widen the range of physiological states that their brain will interpret as consistent or compatible 
with with survival and health. So it raises a lot of interesting questions about the emotional experiences that athletes have while they push their their bodies to these these sort of physiological extremes. You may it's fascinating. It is. You may actually come up with an obesity intervention. You know, helping people to persevere with exercise programs that they think that they want to take or have been um, advised to take. So, uh, actually interpreting those signals when they do begin to exercise, particularly if you haven't done for a long time, as non catastrophic. <laughs> Um, may actually help people to stick to programs rather than thinking that actually there's something seriously wrong and I should stop doing this. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, um, I mean, as, as I think we all see these days, there's a huge development of what people call the, the quantified self. I mean, all these things we can measure our food intake, we can measure our, the number of steps we've taken a day. I think it's dangerous to overdo that. That can in itself become a major source of anxiety. Oh, yeah. you know, if you think you've got to, <laughs> walk 10,000 steps every day but certainly um you know the, the positive side of that is is that feedback for the brain is very powerful if we have a feedback signal then we can learn and we can change behavior um so to be able to link feedback whether it's about perception or about action i think is going to become very significant for for intervening in, in a very wide range you know both training athletes i mean this is done already really but also in 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 cases not only anxiety depression but maybe even eating disorders too and that's our show done for today I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of Who Cares, What's the Point? My name is Saab Johal, the host and producer. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Saab, S-A-R-B, and the show at WCWTP, also on Twitter. You can find us using that WCWTP, Who Cares, What's the Point, on Facebook, or you can come to our uh, our website, whocareswhatsthepoint.com, and you can send us email to or a message through Facebook, Who Cares, what's the point contact at who cares what's the point.com really hope you enjoyed the show it was a very enjoyable conversation between myself and anil um, and hope to see you again soon please subscribe and check in on the back catalog we have too until then 